Let's talk about end times. Give me some things when you hear the phrase end times or apocalypse. What are some things that you associate with it? What are some ideas that come to mind? Let's hear them. The coming of Christ. What else? Signs. Destruction. Destruction. Now we're getting there. What else? Tribulation. That's a great church word. Tribulation. (laughs) What else? Think about (laughs) anxiety. Along with that, fear. Yeah. Yeah. What else? Terrestrial. Oh, yeah. How about cosmic upheaval? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Anything else? Any other thoughts that just pop in your head when you think end times? What's that? War. Famine. I heard twinkling of an eye. Antichrist. Now we're getting there. I'm, I'm wondering when these are going to come out. Antichrist. Uh, false, prophets. false prophets. Yeah. Where does most of your um, where where did where did most of these come from? In other words, where did you hear or learn about, or what shaped your view of it? Okay, so parts of Scripture like Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, which Jesus gives. Some folk religion, just kind of what you've gravitated, what you've accumulated over the years. What's that? Good old Tim LaHaye, who we will talk about graciously. Uh, what, what else? Yeah, the bestsellers, the, the um, end times thrillers. and Anybody ever go to like... Um, or, or have parents or maybe grandparents who went to the, the sawdust revival meetings or the Bible colleges or, or the Bible conferences or things like that. Um, these, are, these are all places where a lot of this stuff is taught, revivals and things like that. Well, what we're going to do in this course is we're going to talk about how a lot of these ideas developed. And the first part of the course is going to be, and this will be tonight and next week, we're just going to do sort of a, a broad overview, a lay of the land. Just get you familiar with some of these terms that you'll see or hear or just come across. And you may not have, you may have sort of known, okay, I've heard of mid-tribulation, pre-millennial. I've heard of that, but I don't know what it means exactly. So we're going to talk about that tonight. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the purpose of end time study and why we even bother. And then in the second part of the course, we're going to move into, after we've covered the various ways Christians have approached, then we're going to get into what I think is the meat of the course, which is, all right, let's look at the Bible texts that all of these different people are pointing at, and let's see what they say in their context, and and evaluate all the things that we hear in light of that. That's the goal, is to evaluate every teaching, every every musing that somebody may have about what's going on in world events or in history or, or, or on 
television evangelists or anything like that, to be able to evaluate it, to be able to sift it through uh, a filter of biblical truth and find out, okay, you know, wh what are they saying and, and does it line up with God's word? Does it not? If it doesn't, where does it diverge? If it does, what does it have in common? So the goal is not to instill in anyone here a particular view of the end time. Eschatology, and that's the first point, eschatology, that's the word for the study of the end times. How do you spell eschatology? Uh, is it on there? It should yes, be on the, okay. yeah, it should be on the syllabus. Okay. Yeah. Eschatology is the fancy theological word for a study of the, and it really is not study of the end times, it's a study of the end. Greek word eschatos means end or last, okay. and eschatology, study of the last things. And therefore, eschatology is by nature an in-house debate or an in-house issue. In other words, Christians can have differences of, of interpretation on eschatological issues and still be part of the body of Christ. Uh, eschatology is not a salvation issue. There are some Christians that will say, if you don't believe this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, that means that you don't take Scripture seriously. That means that you're not a real Christian. That means that we need to pray for you, lay hands on you, drive out demons, whatever, all of that. But the point is that you need to agree with my view of how this works. Okay, so we're not going to do that because that's not fair or charitable to anybody. Eschatology, there's room for differing opinions. There are places where Scripture is ambiguous. There are places where Scripture is ambiguous on events and how they unfold. Now, there are not as many ambiguities as some people would lead you to believe. There's a lot of times people will say, when we're looking at these, you know, premillennial, postmillennial, some people say, I'm panmillennial. I believe it all pan out in the end. <laughs> well, that's cute and that's fun and, and haha, yeah, all right. But at the same time, God does give teachings and they are intelligible and if he taught us something then we should be able to understand it or at least strive to understand it as best we can and there are some basic core truths that we can pull out about the end times that all Christians agree on and we'll talk about those we'll highlight those as well so eschatology which is what this class is about that's your one of your fancy words for the night and it's the study of the last things now Last things in a corporate sense, there's two types of eschatology that we're going to cover. There's corporate and there's individual. Individual. There we go. Corporate and individual. Corporate eschatology is what most people think about when they think eschatology. What's going to happen to the world? When's the Antichrist coming? What's the tribulation? All this kind of stuff. Corporate eschatology is the, the, the end of all things, the end of, of history or the goal of history. Individual eschatology, though, is just as important. That is, what's going to happen or what's, what does it look like at the end of my life, your life? Individual eschatology deals with things like heaven, hell, uh, for our Catholic friends, purgatory, uh, if there's an intermediate state, you know, do you go to be with Jesus when you die or do you go to sleep like sometimes the Bible mentions? Or is it something in between? Um, you know, how, what's it going to look like when I die? What, what about our bodies? What's going to happen if they rot? Can I get cremated? If so, what's that going to do with the resurrection? All these questions are individual 
eschatology questions. Things like, who's the Antichrist? When's Armageddon going to happen? All those are corporate eschatology questions. All right? So, base definitions. Eschatology is a study of what? The end. end. Yeah, the end. It's just study of the end or the study of the last things. And what's corporate eschatology focus on? Yeah, end of history, big picture, the world, history, communities, nations, and individual eschatology is what happens to me, what happens to us, individuals when they die. So, just given some definitions, um, I'll, I'll, I'll read this. This is a good definition from the Pocket Dictionary of Theological Terms. If you want to, it's uh, when he writes about eschatology, it refers to the ultimate climax or the end of history, wherein Christ returns to earth to establish his eternal kingdom of righteousness and justice among all nations. Eschatology, then, is the theological study that seeks to understand the ultimate direction or purpose of history as it moves towards the future, both from an individual perspective, what happens when a person dies, and from a corporate perspective, where is history going and how will it end? Outside of Israel, in the ancient world, and today in other parts of the world, outside of Western culture, the idea is that time or history is cyclical. Right? It just it goes in certain whether it's it's Buddhism or Hinduism that literally teaches that time is cyclical and every X number of generations, the universe is destroyed and reborn, and they celebrate that with the festivals of various gods. Everything has always existed. It always will exist. This was also very popular in the Greek philosophical systems early before biblical times, is, is the universe was eternal. It's just always existed. Everything that's come around has been around, and, and time just repeats. It's cyclical. Yeah. Well, the Hebrew view of history said that's not the case that time had a beginning in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth and, and God started what we know of as history and it's going somewhere. There's a purpose. There's a goal in mind. There, there's, God has a plan in history. Now, it doesn't mean God's locked into history. It doesn't mean God's confined by history. God's everywhere. Uh, he's apart from it. But what we know is that God has a plan for human history. And in Scripture, what we find is, is the, the main character in the Bible, and we mentioned this in Bible for the rest of us, is God is the main character in history. All of the Bible is about God. It's not a book about people. It's a book about God and people's relationship to Him throughout history. All throughout Scripture, there's this looking forward, looking to God and looking forward to where God's bringing everything. What is He doing? And from the very beginning of the Bible, there's hints and, and, and images and illusions of what it all is going towards. We'll talk about some of that more, and I've got a handout that uh, specifically looks at Genesis, the beginning, and Revelation, the end, and how they fit. But the, the, the Hebrew view of, of history was that there's a purpose, there's a goal, there's an end, there's something that God's doing. History's not just meandering along and it's not cycling along. There's a purpose. And we see that in the prophets. And we see that in God's dealing with Israel in the historical books. And we see it in the Gospels. And so all throughout the Bible, eschatology is not just studying the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel, despite what some people would have you believe. Eschatology is, is from the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden all the way, 
to the New Jerusalem, the New Eden, eschatologies throughout the Bible. And one of the things throughout this course is we'll hopefully learn to pick up on that a little bit more because that sums up eschatology. That sums up a study of the end is taken as a whole. When you lay out all the data, when you look at all of Scripture, God's program, God's goal, His purpose is bringing about a redeemed people living within a redeemed creation, enjoying fellowship with their Redeemer God. Because that's what went wrong in the beginning. God created creation to be good. He created people to bear His image and have relationship. And with what we call the fall of, of humanity into sin, Genesis 3 and following, all of that became skewed. In other words, God's plan and purpose got sidetracked from human perspective. And what we read throughout Scripture, though, is even with that going on, God still had a plan, still had a purpose to bring that back, to redeem, to, to, to win back to Himself what He created. And this goes in, flies in the face of a lot of eschatology that some Christians, we talk about folk theology. Folk theology is a term for things that you pick up outside of the Bible and just assume are in the Bible. Uh, one view that crept into the church, folk theology that, that came from the Greco-Roman area of thought, was when you die, the whole purpose is dying and going to heaven, escaping this earth, getting out of this, this shell of a body that we live in and, being, and your soul flying free. These are very common thoughts. Even in Christian hymns, you can find notion, I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away, you know, crossing over to the Jordan River and all this stuff. This, this idea of it, it, the whole goal is to get out of earth because it's fallen and bad and God's done with it. It's all going to burn, so just get me out of here and let me take as many people with me as I can. That's a well-meaning sentiment that a lot of Christians have adopted over the years. problem is that that's not in the Bible. And N.T. Wright in Surprised by Hope is going to really hammer that home. God went to the trouble to create a physical, earthly creation in the first place. So God's not going to let sin and evil undo completely what He took His seven days, however you interpret that, to create and call very good. In other words, God is going to redeem not just souls, but everything. And all the images in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, with the day of the Lord images that the prophets envisioned, and in the New Testament, the day of the Lord, the day of Christ, the day of judgment, all of those images are images of a refinement process or of a, of a when there's fire image used, it's burning away the, the, the cheap and, and the invaluable material so that what's left is the refined, pure, and valuable. And that's the image of judgment. So rather than the goal for Christians to be, you know, get me out of here, just get me, get me away up to heaven where I'll live forever in Revelation and, and uh, prefigured all throughout the Bible, but finding its fulfillment in Revelation is the idea that God is going to bring heaven to earth and He's going to renew. John will see this in the end of Revelation. I saw new heavens and new earth for the first heavens, first earth that passed away. Behold, I make all things new. There, there, there's just this vision of everything that this earth, that this history, that this universe that we live in is supposed to be, but isn't, will find its fulfillment in God's ultimate plan. And we live in the time between when God created and when He redeems. And so the one thing that all Christians agree on, all true Christians who are, who are 
inside the Christian faith, Orthodox, Apostolic Christianity, not you know, different cult groups that have sprung off throughout the years, but all Christians around the world believe Jesus is coming back, and when He does, God's going to restore and redeem. And He's going to basically get rid of all of the effects of the fall. And not just restore creation back to what it once was, but bring it to an even greater height than it was before. That's the beauty in, in throughout Scripture. You always see God taking something. He doesn't take a situation that's, that's gone bad and just restore it back to normal. He takes a situation that goes bad and just does an amazing amount of good with it. Right? He doesn't just restore Joseph back to his family. His brother sold him into slavery. He puts Joseph over the whole nation of Egypt, basically. Uh, he, you know, it's the goal that God can use everything, including sin, suffering, evil, um, all of the plans and schemes and all of that, God can use that to bring about an even better good than initially imagined. And so when we look at eschatology, that's where we're headed. And I'll read this last paragraph for us. History is the story of God's activity in establishing community. Consequently, our corporate human narrative or story is incomplete. It's moving towards the consummation of God's work at the great eschatological day when our Lord returns. Yet we ask, what specific events must transpire as we move towards the consummation of history? For many Christians, this is the central question of eschatology, which they understand as the quest for the biblical chronology of the end. In other words, a number of Christians take the approach of, okay, fine, I know God's coming back. I know He's going to make everything right. That's, I get you. I want to know what's going to happen in the interim. I want to know what's going on in the world. I want to know when I look at the newspaper, what should I make of this? I want to know all of those things. That's where eschatology then narrows in, and that's where differences among Christians will start to arise based on presuppositions that we have going into the Bible. All right, so, so the goal of what I want to stress at the very beginning is, is, is in the Bible, history has a purpose, it has a goal, God has a plan, and all Christians agree. The plan is to redeem, restore, renew, and he's going to come back to do it. So now we get into the fun part. Well, let's look at some of these isms that we're going to hear about. Because what I want to do, and I debated when I was preparing this course, I debated should we start with the biblical data? Should we start with Scripture and read it with no preconceived notions, no isms, that we think are right or that we've been brought up to believe, and then look at all of the views afterwards? Or should we start with the views and then look at Scripture afterwards? And I, I went with the latter because one of the things I realized was almost no one is going to come to these passages with a completely blank slate. In other words, whether you know it or not, you've been taught some form of some of these isms. And there's no sense in trying to... Keep, you know, there's no sense in trying to, to say, okay, I'm going to pretend I don't believe what I've always believed and try to read this with fresh eyes. Rather, let's just let's see what everybody's holding at the table, and then we can evaluate those positions in light of Scripture once we come to it. So, look at, you should have this chart. This is one of the few times that I'm going to use a chart in here, uh, a, a chronology chart. Some Christians will pretty much make charting 
the purpose of the study of eschatology. In other words, you study eschatology so that you can chart the end times, for example. So I mentioned him. Well, hey, here's his book, him and Thomas Ice, two uh, very strong proponents of a theological view. And the purpose is to chart the end times. Does this look familiar to anybody? Anybody ever see this kind of charts growing up? Or see like a preacher standing in front of one of these blowing up really big? Yeah, yeah, kind of a heavier guy with a deep Texas accent. Uh, not naming names, John Hagee. This, for some people, this is, is indispensable to the study of end times. In other words, if you can't chart it out, how are you going to know where you are in this? And how are you going to know how to read the Bible and where it falls? Yeah, some of you say, oh, it's just, you got somebody's got to go through and point, plot this out and make this type of chart so that then we can categorize and sort everything out and know how to read it. All right, so that's one view. I can't, under, I mean, I can barely understand this chart. I have an art degree and two theological, or a theological degree and two art degrees, and I can barely make this out. But some Christians, this is all they know, this is what they know best, and they can explain it. And the whole rest of the book goes into. Um, there's, there's charts within charts. So uh, the title alone is let you know. This is, you you want to chart the end times, here you go. We'll get into that specific view next class or, or possibly the class after that because the goal right now isn't to go in depth on any one of these views but to rather give an overview. So let's define some terms. You're going to hear the word premillennial or premillennialism. You're going to hear postmillennialism, amillennialism. Okay? Now, the thing to remember is this word. What does that mean? Millennial. A thousand years. A thousand, a thousand years. Yeah. Millennial means a thousand years. Now, all of these major views of what's going to happen all center around or are named for how they view this period of a thousand years. Okay, now where does this thousand years come from? Well, in the Bible, we'll look at it later, we're not going to look at it tonight, but in the Bible, Revelation chapter 20 speaks of a period of a thousand years where it says the devil or Satan was bound in order that he couldn't go out and deceive the nations. Revelation 20, let's put it up here speaks of this period known as the thousand years. Satan is bound and Jesus and the saints reign. The Bible also says thousand years is just like one day. Yeah, and Peter, he talks about and quotes the Old Testament saying, yeah, the, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. And we'll see how that plays into it as well. This is the key concept to keep in mind in all of this, is this thousand-year period. Now, one thing is very interesting. Revelation 20 is the only time in the Bible ever that a period of a thousand years, other than in the, the saying that J.R. quoted where it says, with the Lord a thousand years like a day, this is the only time in the Bible that there's a period of a thousand years mentioned. So every other reference in the Bible that people say is talking about this millennium 
that is an interpretation that they're bringing to it. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means that the only time in the Bible where you read about a thousand year period is Revelation 20. So that's something to keep in mind up front. And every view of, of end times will acknowledge that. Going in, just knowing, thousand year period, Satan's bound, Jesus is reigning. All right? That's what all of these views sort of try to orient themselves around. Now, premillennialism. All of these views ask the question, at what point will Jesus return? That's what they center on. At what point in relationship to the millennium is Jesus going to return? Not what day or what hour or what year. You get the whack jobs that try to get into all that. And they write 88 reasons why Christ will return in 88. Did anybody ever buy that? I hope not. <laughs> yeah. Um, not, not getting into date setting or any of that. That's automatically foolish. Because Jesus said, I don't even know. So why would anybody else know? So anytime somebody says a date, just immediately say, you're an idiot. God bless you and you're made in His image, but you're an idiot. Because Jesus said, don't set dates because I don't even know. So how do you think you'll ever know? Alright, so just getting that cleared right up front. But without date setting, the question is, in relationship to this, when is Jesus going to come back? Premillennial view says that... You've got history, it's moving along, Jesus came to earth, uh, the cross, He died, He rose into heaven, and at some point, which is where we are now, Jesus is going to return. Okay? No problem. Everybody agrees with this. When Jesus returns, He is going to bind Satan and set up this thousand year reign on earth. Jesus will come back. He's going to reign on earth. Alright? Satan will be bound. It, it'll be almost this paradise, more or less. Then, at the end of that time, in Revelation 20, it says the, the, the devil was let out for a short while and, and he tried one last attempt and then he was ultimately destroyed. Then, at the end of this thousand years, there's going to be the final judgment. Everybody's resurrected. Satan is destroyed. Sin, death, evil. And all of that stuff is cast into the lake of fire, which is the final death. Some people refer to it as hell. We won't get into the semantics, but just the ultimate destruction. I even put the little fiery font down there so you can have it at the end. That's, the, the, that's where you don't want to go. And all of the righteous, all of the saved, all of the Christian, however you want to put it, they will spend eternity... With Jesus, new heavens, new heaven, new earth. Or the new creation. Alright, so if you're looking at this little chart that I've given, you can put in the stuff you want to. The cross is Jesus' earthly life. The first line on there is Jesus' ascension. He ascends into heaven. That middle section before the second line is, is where we are now, history. That second line is His return, and then that period in the middle is the millennium. And then after that, new creation or lake of fire. Those are the two choices. Okay, That is premillennialism because it has Jesus returning premillennium. He returns before the millennium. His return is what sets up the millennium. All right. 
So all of the passages in the Old Testament that talk about Israel and their glory and all the stuff that God's going to do and Jerusalem being the capital of the nations and, and Gentiles flocking to God and knowledge of Him and all of these passages that we'll look at some, those are all prophecies of this period when Jesus is reigning on earth as earthly Messiah. In other words, He's coming in glory. He's coming to, as King. He came as priest, died, ascended. Now He's going to come back as King. That's premillennialism. That's a view that's as old as the church. The very first Christians that ever spoke about end time stuff, some of the very first Christians basically took this approach. So that is, this, this is a very old, very orthodox, well-known view. All right, this is called premillennialism. Sometimes you'll see this called historic premillennialism because it's it's been around for all of church history. Okay? Now, that, that bar underneath that says dispensational premillennial, just hold it there for a second. We're going to come back to that. That'll be the last one that we cover because within premillennialism, there's a subset. The next view is postmillennialism. Now, if premillennialism was Jesus comes back before the millennium, anybody want to hazard a guess as what postmillennialists believe? <coughs> Jesus comes back at the end of the millennium. In other words, post-millennialism believes that you've got history moving along. Jesus ascended into heaven. And while He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, waiting to come and judge the quick and the dead, in the meantime, you've got uh, history just moving along. And throughout history, the church is given the mandate, Matthew 28, go make disciples of all nations. Well, post-millennials believe, hey, the church is going to do that. Jesus said it. He commissioned us. The church's goal is, and, and, and as the church's influence spreads throughout the world, as the gospel spreads, then eventually that will usher in the millennium. This, this period of, of the reign of Christ through the church, not an earthly Jesus because he's still reigning universally in heaven, but through the church, through His people, He will reign over the world. All of the nations will be converted. Maybe not entirely, but for the most part. Postmillennials would say, we don't have to press for literalism, but the gospel wins. The church wins. The church does its mission. It spreads, and, and um, the world comes to faith. And that becomes or ushers in, at some point in the future, this thousand-year reign where Jesus is reigning. Then at the end of that thousand-year reign, Jesus returns, and it's just like this. Final judgment, you know, all of the heaven, hell, all that comes into play. So postmillennials believe that Jesus, if you want to fill in the chart there, that first, dot, first dash is Him ascending, second dash is the beginning of the millennium, and then the final dash at the end, that's His return. So for postmillennials, now both historic premillennial and postmillennial believe or, or accept that the millennium doesn't necessarily have to be a literal thousand years. Both positions accept, hey, Revelation uses numbers very symbolically, and, and it doesn't literally need to be a thousand years because a thousand can just represent a long but finite period of time. So we don't really know. It could be 10,000 years. It could be 500 years. It, it's, it's just it's a period of time known as the millennium where Jesus is reigning. So premillennials, Jesus comes back, sets it up on earth. Post-millennials, he sets it up through his church. 
and at some point in history we'll get there. The last view of the three main views is, this is post-millennial, I'm just going to abbreviate post-mill, the last view is amillennial. Amillennialism. Amillennialism, the prefix A or A, which means not. Amillennialism is the belief that the millennium in Revelation 20 is not a literal period in the future that we're waiting on. Rather, Revelation 20's description of the millennium is Revelation's prophetic yet ironic depiction of the reign that believers have in Jesus and the binding of Satan that took place on the cross. So amillennials believe that history is moving along, Jesus came, He ascended, and this whole period of time between His ascension and His return and final judgment that's known as the church age or history or however you want to put it, is the millennium. In other words, the millennium is, the, is Revelation's way of describing the church age, where the first Christians were and where we still find ourselves in it today. So our millennials say, not only is the millennium not a literal thousand-year period, but it's also not a future period that we're looking forward to. It's what Christians live in now. Okay? So, pre, post, ah. Those are the millennial. The, of, of, if, you, if you look at any of the positions of, of views of the end times and how they relate to the Bible, they fall broadly into one of these three approaches. Broadly. There's, some, there's a, a fourth view that's not really a view, but it, it's, you may hear it, so I'll mention it. Uh, it's called preterism. And it's P-R-E-T... Yeah, preterism. And preterism basically says, it's not so much a view as it is a way of reading Scripture. It says every passage in the Bible that talks about the end is really describing the early church or in, in, in vivid or triumphant imagery. So, so there's, no, there's no looking forward to all of these events that are going to happen before Jesus comes back. He's going to come back Preterists believe he's going to come back, but the Bible doesn't tell us anything about what's going to happen leading up to it. It just tells us, be ready. And all of the events that speak of the end in Scripture, preterists say those all describe the early, early history of the church. The fall of Jerusalem, the fall of Israel under Rome, the destruction of the Roman Empire. It's all happened. And 70 A.D., yeah. They, they say most of Scripture prophetically took place in the year 70 A.D. That's when the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. So we don't need to look for future fulfillment. Now, um, among these positions, uh, there, one subset has developed. And the only reason that I want to spend time covering is because it's become so popular. And among premillennials... There's been a type of premillennialism that arose, and it's on your chart I put there called dispensational premillennialism. Next week we're going to look at, we're going to spend a whole week looking at what this thing called dispensationalism is, excuse me, where it came from, 
uh, we're going to we're just going to look at the background and and why Christians believe it. And we're going to make the case next week for that way of looking at the end times. And then the week after that, hopefully, we'll look at some challenges that that view faces. But dispensational premillennials, these are the ones that most of you in here probably either grew up with or are very familiar with because it is it was huge in America in the early 1900s until today. Dispensational premillennials. There's a whole view of reading the Bible where you break it up into seven ages or dispensations where God deals differently with people and salvation in each dispensation. And without getting into all that, dispensational premillennialism teaches that before this return of Jesus, before this thousand years starts, precisely seven years before this thousand year period starts, Jesus actually is going to Take the church out of the world. All right? That's what that little line here is, this little line. Um, this, is, this is the period where Jesus is going to take the church out of the world. They, have been, they, they call it the rapture. Um, and, and that comes from, they'll say Thessalonians 4, and um, some say Revelation chapter 4, there's a passage. So, seven years before Jesus returns, the church is taken out of the world. And once the church is taken out of the world, then the influence that the church has through the Holy Spirit is taken out of the world. And there is this period of suffering and basically hell on earth for seven years. And that is known as seven years, the tribulation. And during this tribulation, uh, that's when everything's awful. But halfway through this tribulation, and this is where different, different uh, particular dispensational views will fill in the details slightly differently. But generally speaking, halfway through this, most people say exactly halfway, three and a half years in the middle, uh, the, the Antichrist is going to rise up out of the ashes of this world gone haywire, going to unite everybody, calm everybody, win everybody over, make a treaty with Israel of some type where, where, where um, Israel will, will rebuild their temple that was destroyed in 70 AD and the sacrifices will start back up and all this will happen. And then the Antichrist in the middle of that is going to break his treaty with Israel and the armies of his armies and depending on what decade you're in is going to be whether it's China, Iran, and Russia or Russia and... and um, uh, the European Union and uh, wh- whoever it is. It's always, it's never America, interesting, um, but it's always going to be some nation over there where they speak foreign language. It's going to all come against Israel and, and, and the city is going to be surrounded, Jerusalem is going to be surrounded, and the plains of Megiddo, there's going to be this big battle and all the forces, and then that's when Jesus will return and destroy all of those massive army and set up his millennial kingdom. Now the church is in heaven, so it's hanging out with God in heaven. When Jesus returns, he is going to reign, but his thousand year reign will be over ethnic Israel. Because during that tribulation, the people who are going to come to faith in Jesus are going to be Jews, who are going to accept their Messiah, and then Jesus is going to come back and he's going to rule from Jerusalem, from the throne of David, and all of the Old Testament prophecies about Israel being at the head of the nations and, 
Everything that you read about in the Old Testament will literally happen, has to literally happen during this thousand year period. Then at the end of that thousand year period, Satan is going to be let loose and, and, and evil is going to rise up one more time for one final, one more try. And that's when God will destroy them with the word of his mouth and there will be final judgment and, and Satan and evil will be cast into the lake of fire and new creation will be here. So the, the dispensational premillennialism it, its unique contribution to eschatology is the uh, idea of the rapture and that that will happen seven years before the millennium. The one that kick-started... Anybody read this? Late Great Planet Earth, Hal Lindsey? You ready for a sweet picture? Look at that. <laughs> that is an, that's an awesome author shot. Uh, Late Great Planet Earth, when this came out, it sold, by this time there are 10 million copies in print, in this edition. This thing just flew off the shelves among evangelical Christians. But this didn't come up with this. What Hal Lindsey did... No, before Hal Lindsey, there was another guy. Oh yeah, there were a number of other guys. Oh, there, Hal Lindsey was later in a long line. Um, we'll look next week, but the, the basic ideas of dispensationalism came from mostly the work of an English or an Irish pastor named John Nelson Darby. And John Nelson Darby, on his trips to America, that he made a number of them during the Civil War time, he was with the Plymouth Brethren and George Mueller and these other guys, eventually broke away from him because of his end times views. But uh, John Nelson Darby came up with this system or, or, or found this system in Scripture, is, is what he would say. I want to be fair. And he had influence on a guy named Cyrus Schofield. And, and, and with Schofield and some other uh, late 1800s Christians, they had these, these, these Niagara Bible conferences where they would get together and just discuss end times and what's going on and try to find in Scripture what God's doing. And the, the, before then, there wasn't really ever any such thing as a study Bible. There were Bibles, and they, had, they may have had translator notes in the margins or whatever, but it wasn't really a study Bible. Well, Schofield set out, after teaching this, this, um, this distance learning course that he came up with, where it just sort of walked you through the Bible and all of the dispensations, everything he had kind of pulled from Darby and from these other early dispensationalists, and he, he, he came up with a, a Bible the King, using the King James that actually incorporated those ideas into the text of Scripture right alongside. is the first study Bible. And so for the first time, Christians could buy this Bible and, and also have this course on theology included in the notes. Now, now today, it's nothing. There's hundreds of study Bibles. But back then, that was revolutionary early 1900s, and this, this thing sold like you would not believe. And it was more than any other book, more than any other source, the Schofield Reference Bible is what um, disseminated dispensationalist approach throughout American Christians. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, uh, most, a lot of people, especially in the South, in the Bible Belt, um, but, but it, it, it's reached spread, and, and even up north and all throughout, 
the, the Schofield Reference Bible. And, and the study notes in here, they, they have this chain reference system where it leads you from the first time a word appears, and then it says, <clears throat> to see how this progresses and how God develops this idea, here's the next section, and here's the next passage it appears in. And so the, the goal for Schofield was to lead Christians who, who didn't have the ability of, of, of seminary or commentaries or all these things we take for granted, to lead them through the Bible so that they can make sense of it. And, and if you read the preface, you can you go through Schofield's preface, and he talks all about, this is my goal, this is the purpose. This, in other words, he front loads at the beginning, here's how you need to read the Bible. What he doesn't really do is make, a good, make it clear that this was a very innovative and unique way of reading the Bible. So the average reader just assumes this is how the church has always read the Bible. And after a century and a half of that, it's become in the popular uh, consciousness of, of our theology. But what how Lindsay did was how Lindsay put in a popularized, politically relevant format the Schofield reference view of the end times. And he applied it to what was going on in the 60s and the, the Red Scare and Russia and all of these predictions that he makes in here. And the book is just a book of, here's what's going to happen. Here, watch, literally, watch in the next few decades as Russia does this, as the United Nations, the European Union, well, the European Union went around, the United Nations and, and European nations, all it, it was very prophetic in predicting all these things. That's why it's sold. Now, it's been updated and revised a number of times as certain <laughs> things change. But... Bless him. How Lindsay's still on TV? I was flipping channels the other night. He's still on TV. Most of the participants have new names, new national identities, but it's still pretty much the same thing. And what's that? He actually still has the mustache, but I think he has a goatee now. I think he's graduated to the goatee, um, like the Kenny Rogers look, sort of. But. That was in the 60s. Then the thing that, for most relevant for us, that really energized dispensationalism was a series of books that came out, late 80s, early 90s, by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, Left Behind. That, they, they sold a few copies. <laughs> yeah. Left Behind was the, th the series of Left Behind was the third in the, this wave of dispensationalist teaching. Schofield Reference Bible was the attempt to make academic and theological this system of, of end times views that Darby had come up with, developed over the years. Then Late Great Planet Earth was an attempt to say, this is how this applies to where we're living today. This is how this applies to now. And then Left Behind is a way to put that into an exciting, readable, fast-paced action novel series. Uh, and, and those three books have been read far more than the Bible when it comes to just end times teachings. In other words, more people get their theology from those books than from, a, from, from what we're doing, which is a systematic study of end times. And so it's just something to be aware of. It's something to be aware of. We're going to look more, like I said, next week particularly on... Um, where that came from. And, I, and I'll have some handouts. I'll, a lot of stuff, I'll, I'll give you resources. The goal is to make your notebook by the end of this course a resource for you to use in the future. Not just now, but so I'm going to give you articles. I'll give you stuff that we may not have time to get through. In, well, we won't have time to get through in class. 
but that you can keep and reference back to. Um, let's look at, are there any, any questions on that? How's everybody? All right. Well, let's look at uh, some foundational questions because the, the question that a lot of people have, about, okay, all these different positions, how do Christians come to it? You know, like Christians can't agree on this, so how do we know any of them is right? You know, these people say they're right and other people say they're wrong. So what am how, you know, I'm not a theologian. How am I supposed to make sense of all this? Well, it all hinges. Your view of end times is going to hinge on how you approach the Bible. It's just very simple. It's not this unsolvable problem. It's not overly complicated. Anybody in here can have a great... In fact, if you internalize what we just talked about, you you're in the upper percentile of Christians as far as your knowledge of eschatology. Because a lot of people see the isms and the charts and they're like, I can't figure that out. I don't want to hear about it. But if you understand those three basic overarching views of what's going to happen at the end, then you can filter things and you can sort of line things up and see where they fit. Well, foundational questions, how do we interpret Scripture? That's the, that will determine more than anything your, your eschatological views is how do you interpret Scripture. And what we talk about, those of you who have taken Bible for the rest of us, you, we've talked about, remember, the importance of genre in interpreting Scripture. The importance, you read the Bible based on what genre, which is a type of literature, what genre you're reading. In other words, when people say, well, do you take the Bible literally? You say, well, which part? Oh, so you pick and choose? No, I don't pick and choose. I let the Bible tell me how to interpret it. If, if there's a genre of Scripture that's historical narrative, I read it as historical narrative. I don't read it as poetry or allegory. If there's a part of Scripture that is poetry and allegory, I don't read it as historical narrative. If there's a part of Scripture that's a letter, to a certain group of individuals like the Ephesians or the Colossians or whoever. I don't read it as if it's a letter to Good Shepherd. I may can apply it to Good Shepherd, but I don't read it as if Paul wrote it to Good Shepherd. In other words, genre determines how we interpret the Bible. And there are all kinds of genres in Scripture. Again, Bible for the rest of us, we go over it so we won't rehash it here. But there are two particular types of literature that have more weight and bearing on eschatology than most others. Two types of literature. The first type of literature is prophetic. Prophetic literature, writings of the prophets. Prophetic literature has characteristics that other types of literature don't have. The main one being it claims to be the words of God. Like almost verbatim, thus saith the Lord. Uh, prophetic literature is, is, is claiming to speak on God's behalf. It's not a, a writing that seeks to give a historical account of something. It's not a genealogy. It's not a, Prophetic literature is God has something to say to His people, and He has spoken it through a messenger. We need to listen. But within that, the prophets are a very wide-ranging group of individuals as far as how they speak and how they write. Some of the prophetic books have a lot of narrative. In other words, it's like a story, like Jonah, for instance. Some of the prophetic books are almost entirely poetry. Some of the prophets use 
puns and word plays. Uh, Jeremiah, God uses some puns that we would say are really just cheesy in English, but he uses them. And he, you know, he, he says, Jeremiah, what do you see? Jeremiah says, I see an almond tree. He says, you're right to see an almond tree because I'm watching over my word to make sure that it happens. What does that mean? Well, in Hebrew, the word for almond tree sounds like the word for watching over. It would be like if God showed Jeremiah a watch and said, what do you see? I see a watch because I'm watching over. I mean, that's cheesy to us, but in ancient Hebrew, that communicated powerfully. And that's how, um, at least in that instance in Jeremiah, I think it's chapter two or three. So prophetic literature has to be interpreted according to its own rules, its own way of reading. In other words, we can't just take a passage of scripture and just say, well, just read it literal. What's the literal meaning? Because the prophets don't always speak literally. They always speak true. They always speak accurate. They always speak for what's really going on or what God really wants to say. But it doesn't always use literal language. And that's a hang-up that a lot of Christians uh, are under the, because of the, the fundamentalist versus modernist controversies in the early 1900s and it developed, there became the suspicion of anybody who says don't take anything in Scripture literally is this uh, pseudo-intellectual liberal trying to get you away from God's Word. And so in reaction to that, you have Christians that just insist on, no, you take it literally because God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Well-meaning and the faith is not in doubt, but when John said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, now he didn't say, behold, there's somebody who is symbolically like the Lamb of God. He said, behold the Lamb of God. And he pointed to Jesus. None of John's hearers would have assumed that Jesus was a lamb. They wouldn't have looked for wool and four feet and somebody chewing on grass. They, they knew he's speaking real truth in a non-literal manner. So likewise, when the prophets are talking about the fall of Babylon and they, call, they, they use language that's, that's cosmic, and, you know, when the prophets are like, the stars fell from the sky and I saw the sky, heavens rolled back like a scroll and this and that and that. And they're describing this, but they specifically said this is an oracle about Babylon and its fall. Then we have to be sensitive and read that in its context, how its original hearers would have heard it. And we do the same thing in English. When I say uh, if, if a big event happens in, in the news, somebody will say that was an earth shattering event. The earth didn't shatter. It's still here. But that's a very vivid way of describing something of supreme importance. Well, the Bible does the same thing. So prophetic literature is something that we have to come to on its terms, not on ours. We can't decide how we're going to interpret Scripture first and then go to Scripture and see what it reads like. We have to go to Scripture first and see what it says and how it reads and then say, now how should we best interpret this? And, and to be open and fluid in, in, in our understanding. Reading a scripture according to its genre is part of just good old-fashioned responsible Bible study. And, and it's something that every Christian does, even the ones who insist that they don't, they still do. Because again, no, no Christian believes Jesus had four feet and covered in wool. But yet they'll say, well, I believe he's the Lamb of God. So, But the second type of literature, we'll probably end on this one, that, uh, tonight is apocalyptic apocalyptic literature apocalyptic is a type of writing 
found in the Bible. The main two apocalyptic books in the Bible are Daniel and Revelation. Those are the main two. There are others, and there are passages in biblical books that have apocalyptic writing within them. There are books that aren't apocalyptic, but they have sections that are. Uh, Zechariah might be a good example. Zechariah is a prophetic book, but it uses apocalyptic language. Apocalyptic doesn't mean end of the world. The word apocalypse doesn't mean end of the world. Apocalyptic comes from a Greek word, apocalypsis. And it literally means to unveil or to reveal. Apocalypsis, if, 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 I, if I'm showing a new car at a car show, you know, and it's got the cloth over it, when you pull back that cloth off the car and everybody sees it, you've, that's an apocalypsis. You've unveiled. Um, anybody see the Matrix movies? For those of you who have seen The Matrix, at the very beginning of the first one, when, um, when the character Morpheus, he tells Neo, he says, I'm going to give you two pills. If you take this one pill, you're going to just wake up in your room and nothing will ever happen. But if you take this red pill, you're going to see the world as it truly is. That's a perfect example of apocalypsis. Unveiling, pulling back the curtain. Uh, Toto did it in The Wizard of Oz. When he pulls back the curtain, that was Toto's apocalypsis. He unveiled that it wasn't this all-powerful Wizard of Oz, it was a little guy with a funny mustache turning a few lovers. Apocalypsis is the unveiling. Now, apocalyptic literature was written in the centuries before Jesus and in the century and a half or so after the time of Jesus. It's a very popular form of writing among Jews. There's a list, this chart that I've given you, there are a number of Christian and Jewish apocalypses that aren't in the Bible. They, they, they weren't ever seen as scripture, but, but they're Christian writings or Jewish writings, and there's lists of them. And the only reason I'm giving you this is to see that apocalyptic is a type of writing. And any type of writing has certain, uh, certain ways you should interpret it that are specific to that genre. So, for instance, apocalyptic writing, in apocalypses, Almost always, the person who's conveying the vision, it's almost always a vision that a person receives or, or, or a guided tour of the heavenly world or, or of a heavenly perspective. The person is given a vision. It's usually given to report or relate to a group that's undergoing persecution or suffering, which is what the Jews in the centuries before Jesus were undergoing, and then Jews and especially Christians after Jesus were going through persecution and suffering. Apocalyptic literature is meant to give hope. That's the irony of all ironies, is apocalyptic literature is meant to give hope rather than fear. Apocalyptic literature is meant to unveil, to pull back the curtain of history and say, I know that it seems like the world is going this way and you're on the short end of the stick, but from heaven's perspective, it's really going this way and you're the conqueror and the victor if you remain strong and stand firm. Almost all apocalypses have that feel to them or that flavor. Apocalyptic writing uses symbols and imagery that are found commonly. It uses numbers that are found commonly throughout the apocalyptic. Um, for instance, numbers like seven are numbers for completion or wholeness. Um, Numbers like four are, is, is sort of a number that designates earthly forces or natural things. 
numbers like 3, 10, 12, all of these numbers, and, and there's um, symbolism and significance to all of them that we want to get into. But the point being, apocalyptic literature, the authors of it never intended it to be read the way 21st century newspapers are read. In other words, 21st century news reporters won't keep their jobs very long if they describe a, a government as a drunken prostitute sitting on a beast devouring the blood of God's people. You can be fired very, even, even no matter how radical a station you work for, you know, even if, even if Fox News describes the Democratic Party that way, they're going to get fired because even that's too much for a Fox News standard and vice versa, CNN or whichever side you lean. Uh, apocalyptic literature, though, did that. It used images and symbols and vivid, sometimes contradictory images to convey a reality that was deeper than that, that was truer than that. And, and this all may seem kind of like, okay, I don't understand. You'll see when we get to it. When we start looking at Daniel, when we start looking at Revelation, and we start seeing the symbolism, you'll see examples of how that works. But it's important to keep in mind because if we don't interpret Scripture according to its rules, then we end up reading our meaning into Scripture rather than pulling the meaning from Scripture. And that's what we don't want to do. All right, so... But approaching apocalyptic literature, there have been, and I didn't give a chart for this because uh, I'll, I'll bring one next week, but, but there, there are different ways that people have looked at apocalyptic literature in the Bible, specifically Revelation and Daniel. Those are the big ones. So when I say apocalyptic, most of the time it'll be shorthand for Daniel, Revelation, maybe some sections in the Gospels where Jesus uses apocalyptic imagery like Matthew 24. But for the most part, that's what I'm speaking of. Well, different ways of interpreting or, or different um, approaches that Christians have taken have, have popped up through the years. One approach is, I've mentioned it before, is the, the preterist approach. And preterists just say, Apocalyptic literature just described, and prophetic literature just describes the period of time that it was written in or shortly thereafter. So there's no need to look for modern stuff to go along with it. It all happened then. So we just need to, to you know, seek the Lord and, and be ready for whatever He's going to do. But, and I'm oversimplifying, of course, but for the most part, preterists say it's all happened. All that stuff in Revelation was describing what was going to happen when Jerusalem was destroyed or when the Roman Empire fell. Well, the opposite end of that is the approach that's called futurist. And futurism, exact opposite. Almost none of that stuff has happened yet. The stuff that Daniel writes about, that's stuff that's going to happen at the end of the world. And we're waiting for that stuff to start happening. The stuff in Revelation, none of that started yet. Maybe the first three chapters, but the, the real body, the vision, all of that, that's still coming because all of it kicks off with whatever events futurists like to put in there. The rapture of the church or the 70th week of Daniel or all these things that we won't get into now. So futurists say, hey, everything that's Revelation's writing, everything after chapter 4 especially, that's all, we're, we're living in those times when that's going to happen. So, so you watch the newspaper and the current events to see, has the tribulation started yet? You know, when is Jesus coming? But what's going to happen? Oh, great, yeah, Jack Van Impey, you know, John Hagee, 
Tim LaHaye, all the futurism, dispensationalists are inherently futurist. That's just, I mean, that's not an insult. That's just dispensationalists argue for a futurist approach. This stuff was written about the end. Preterists say, no, it was written about the end from their perspective, which was for us the past. Another view that's been popular throughout the church uh, is historicist. The historicist view. And historicist says the, the events of the apocalyptic books, Daniel Revelation, are describing all of history in a long sequence. So in other words, the events that Revelation and Daniel talk about started in the first centuries after Jesus. And, and then the things depict things that have happened throughout history. So for instance, the Antichrist, that's a prediction of the state-run church that would later become the Roman Catholic Church. Um, or if you're Roman Catholic, that's a depiction of a schismatic church that would later become the Protestant Church. And you can def plug in. So historicists, you, you, you see who, who, fit, who's, who does the shoe fit? That's who we're going to say is whoever. All right, so the historicists. And sometimes these blend together. Futurists become historicists when somebody they don't like is in a position of power. I mean, heck, in my lifetime, Ronald Reagan's been the Antichrist. Bill Clinton's been the Antichrist. George Bush has been the Antichrist. Obama's the newest Antichrist. These sometimes blend together. Another approach is called idealist approach. And the idealist approach says... Guys, I think you're coming at this wrong. These apocalyptic writings are not meant to be specific, concrete, one-to-one -one references. They're meant to embody the spirit of what God's doing in the world. So, is when the Bible describes an antichrist who rises, and, or, or, or a little horn, or something like that, who rises up and exercises power, the idealist says, that we don't have to try to fit one person to that. That's any system that rises up that sets itself against the gospel, that persecutes God's people, that blasphemes the name, any of those, that's who it's talking about. So in every age of the church, there are these symbols present. In other words, it's not a one-to-one -one prediction. There are many. And one of the arguments idealists will say is that the author of 1 John, they'd say he seemed to be an idealist. He says in 1 John, You've heard it said that the Antichrist is coming. I tell you now, many Antichrists have already gone out. They're here. So, you know, they would make the argument that the Bible itself takes an idealistic approach to apocalyptic literature. These three would say no, because some of those images in apocalyptic writings, Daniel and Revelation, are so specific that we know who they referenced. So that means the others must reference somebody as well. And then the last approach, for lack of a better term, is the eclectic approach. And the eclectic approach says, there's some truth in all of these, and we don't need to be dogmatic about how we do it. Does, does apocalyptic literature convey idealistic images that we can see in every generation? Yeah, it's definitely. Have there been historical reference to some of the images and things? Sure. A good example would be Nero. Look at that, Revelation. Uh, is, does the Bible speak to the future, like stuff after the end, end, end times? Yeah, there's stuff about the end that hasn't happened yet. But has a lot of the stuff that the Bible has talked about happened and did happen? Yeah, absolutely. It, a lot of it 
in 70 AD. So that's the fifth approach. And I'm not going to hide it. I, this one makes the most sense to me um, rather than trying to find your way into one of those and making everything fit. The purpose of this course is to get you, to get all of us to question what we've been taught in a healthy way, to test the spirits, uh, to understand that there are multiple views out there, but at the end of the day, you're probably going to gravitate towards one, maybe two. Uh, I, I, I lean between two views when it comes to end time stuff. I haven't decided. Other Christians will be very open with their view. And dispensationalists are usually the most open with their, you know, what they believe. But the point isn't that any of these, these views are marks of your spiritual maturity. But if you study end times, if you study eschatology, you should be able to have a decent grasp of what do other Christians believe, and more importantly, what do I believe? Because what we believe about the future determines how we live in the present. If you believe this world is going to burn, there's nothing redeemable in it, that's going to affect how you interact with culture. That's going to affect how you care for the environment. That's going to affect how you deal with non-Christians. How you, it, it has, not saying right or wrong, it has bearings. So, likewise, if you believe that this world is pretty much all there is and that the Bible language is sort of flowery exaggerations, that's going to affect how attached you remain to the, this earthly um, kingdom that you're building. So, what we believe about the future determines how we live in the present. And it's something that, that as Christians, at the end of the day, every view, every view of eschatology that's in line with the Bible in any way, shape, or form, even if it's not perfect, even if it's got a lot of holes in it or, or you're still grappling with it, every view should end in hope. It should end in the promise because that is what gave Christians the, the ability to go into the Colosseums to lay their lives down in the Roman Empire, to give sacrificially on the mission field. That's what has inspired Christians, is this hope that God's not done with history, and at the end of the day, when all is said and done, God will put everything to right. He will vindicate those who need to be vindicated, and He will hold accountable those who need to be held accountable. And so that gave Christians the hope in the face of the Roman authorities to stand there and say, I know you've got the power of the sword, but there's one coming who has, his, his word is sharper than any sword that you wield. And that's what's going to get the final say. So whatever you end up with in, when we're studying eschatology, as long as it's a view that inspires hope and inspires your faith, not in a retreating mentality or, or a pessimistic or, or in, a, in a prideful or any of that, then you, it's contributing to who you are as a Christian and your Christian growth. So, next week we're going to look at dispensationalism, how it came about. We're going to spend a whole week on it just because it is the dominant view and it's worth understanding. Um, I'm going to try to present it as it would be presented if Jack Van Impey himself were here presenting it. And then the week after that, I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to share with you the week after that what people who are not dispensationalists have noted about dispensationalism and why they have rejected it. week after that, we'll look at the two what we would say mainstream orthodox Christian views of the end times, roughly, and which ones have been sort of the, the minority views among Christians. I mean, they're right or wrong, but it's helpful to know 
what Christians have believed. All right, so will somebody close us with a quick word of prayer?